0: Are you tired of being broke? Do you struggle with debt? Are you ready for a change? If so, you've found the right place. Welcome to the Proper Sense Podcast, where money doesn't talk, it works. My name is Eric, and I invite you to join me and my co-hosts, Keith and Nick, as we reveal the truth about how to succeed financially. Whether you're just beginning your journey we have many miles behind you. We're here to help. If you would like to follow or contact us, visit propersense.com.
1: We are back with episode God Knows What on the Proper Podcast. I'm Nick Sherman's along with my buddy, Eric Stauffer. Eric,
0: what it do? Not much, man. Just uh, sent the kids away for the weekend. First time we got a little bit of, uh, little bit of privacy. Wife and I going to go on a date night tonight for the first time in a while. Looking forward to that. What does that mean for you? Uh, just movie, dinner, something simple. You know, get the training wheels back on. Remember what it's like to uh, run around town without the kids. I always find those nights have these...
1: You have these extremely high hopes and I'm going to do this and that and have adult time. And then I end up falling asleep at 830 in my own drool on the couch. Maybe that's just at my house.
0: Well, the key to happiness is low expectations. And uh, I actually watched a TED talk on that, which was pretty enlightening. And he used the analogy of jeans. You know, 40 years ago, you walked into the store and there was two pairs of jeans and they both sucked. But your level of happiness with your choice was pretty good because your expectations were low. Now you walk into a jean store or just a department store and there's 10,000 to choose from. And the, the, the issue of having so much choice means that your expectations are so high that you struggle to actually be satisfied with your purchase, even though they're a lot better than the jeans were 40 years ago. So key to happiness, low expectations. So beat yourself down and lose
1: your will to live and then everything else will exceed expectations.
0: Something like that. Or just... Don't overthink things in the positive way before they happen. So that way they, you know, if, you, if, if it if you'd only achieves a 95 out of 100, but you expected a 98, you're going to be dissatisfied. If you expected an 80 and got an 85, then you're happy. So it's all about what you expected. So what are we talking about today? Today we've got an interesting topic that's actually, I think, very timely uh, with the given market with housing and everything. We're going to talk about the non-obvious expenses that come with buying a home because we have a lot of first-time home buyers that you know are used to renting and making a single payment and they think oh i'm just going to switch it over and and buy a house and get into that whole game not fully appreciating how many costs and how many ongoing expenses come with that so we're going to dive into some of those and uh, help maybe set some expectations for future home buyers So this actually
1: strikes a chord with me. I was playing golf with a good friend. He's like 30 years old, just bought his first house, just got engaged. A lot of positive life changes for this young man. And he did all the right things. He put 20% down on his house. He had planned for repairs. I think his house needed a new roof. And then he was super surprised about all the ancillary, not so obvious costs. We're prepared to talk about what those are at the start. So prior to buying your house, the ongoing costs, and maybe some things you you didn't think about. And our, our goal is really to give people a sense of what it actually takes to operate a home, to give them a margin of safety so they're not scraping the bottom of the barrel just to operate a household.
0: But before we dive into that, let's talk a little bit about the housing market in general, because I think we can both agree we're looking at an environment that in our lifetimes we've never seen. And even talking to people older than us, we've never seen. You know, We lived through the housing crash in the early 2000s or the mid 2000s. What do you call that? The aughts, the 2000 aughts. And so we've seen that and that's helped frame sort of expectations for at least one generation. But this situation we find ourselves in kind of coming out of the COVID pandemic is just completely off the charts. We've never seen the uh, perfect storm, if you will, of all those things. So let's, before we dive into the hidden costs, let's talk about some of the triggers that are causing this massive home shortage and and accelerated pricing.
1: And I would counter that that we've seen some of these symptoms play out before. I think COVID and the pandemic maybe let us down an, an area that we have not seen. Just to give you a sense of some of the levers that are being pushed or pulled to to bring us to this point in the housing markets. One, money is cheap, meaning rates are low. So someone can borrow at a low rate that incentivizes them to to borrow, right? Because money is cheap, you can borrow more, you can borrow a lower cost of interest. That was a condition for the mid-2000s, the aughts or whatever you said, money was cheap and that led to a lot of speculation. So that's going on right now. The second thing is supply is shallow, meaning there's not a lot of houses for sale. And a few things have been amplified by the pandemic. One, people are moving out of cities. People want to get away from other people. So they're looking for land. They're looking for places in the suburbs. And the other part of that is home builders and lumber, lumber is a commodity that goes into housing obviously a lot of these lumber mills that produce the end product wood that goes into building a house started to reduce capacity a couple years ago and in the pandemic as they as they thought demand was going to fall off a cliff they reduced capacity further so it's a it's a perfect storm of of lack of supply of homes a commodity crunch a labor shortage which I didn't talk about so the federal government is essentially competing with private labor in that the government is paying people essentially not to work and the line between not working and working you know the wages there are pretty similar so it's just created a a messy perfect storm of factors that have led to housing prices going straight up but if i was to point to two things it's the cheap money and lack of supply that are really driving the ascension of housing prices.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that as the primary drivers. Um, And those for people that aren't fully versed in this, in a static situation, the way interest rates affect home prices, because most people are buying based on their monthly payment, so their mortgage payment and what they can afford. So when interest rates go down, that means people can afford more house. And so it drives prices up. And then obviously the same sort of thing when you're talking about supply and demand on the supply side if the supply is low and there's more people wanting to buy it it drives the price up and some of the sort of fringe things that are also adding to this is you have a no for no foreclosure situation right now so instituted by the government just to keep everybody settled while we get through the pandemic but what that means is a lot of the homes that would be churning due to foreclosures that would be up on the market short sales And then in in addition, uh, there's a lot of renter protections out there where they haven't had to pay rent, you can't do evictions. So those types of homes that an investor might own and eventually want to sell, they're having a hard time getting those things listed too. One interesting stat that I came across recently, and I don't have the specific numbers, but in general, we build about somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 million new homes a year. So that helps... You know, keep the supply going because home building is a long-term process to get these things up to speed. And what happened after the two thousand seven two thousand eight housing crisis is from two thousand or mortgage crisis from from uh, two thousand nine till about two thousand thirteen, they built close to ten million homes less than they do on average. And so, not only have all of these other factors started to come into play, but we've got a supply shortage that is still a holdover from you know, over ten years ago that's still trying to get caught up. And so, you know, all of these factors kind of come together, create a perfect storm. And now you've got, you know, all cash buyers bidding out first time home buyers. You've also got investment firms that are moving into single family homes. So they're buying up. It doesn't represent a huge percentage of the overall home bot or homes bought, despite what the news says, but there's just all of the factors that would work against someone getting into an affordable house are kind of all happening at the same time.
1: No, and I think you're exactly right on the supply side, further shallowing out supplies, these big institutional piles of money that are trying to generate income or yield for their investors in a low rate environment. So they're buying single family homes, turning around and renting those out, and then they pass along the rental income to their investors. So so that takes a, a huge chunk of supply off the market as well. And we've all heard stories of bidding wars, Eric, you just kind of touched on it, where you know, a house might be listed for 350000 and it sells for, for 475000 and there's 50 bids on it in less than a week. Like that is the sign. That's not the sign of a healthy market. Sure, that's good for sellers, but it's not so good for buyers. So we're going to talk about all of the fallout from this, not only as a buyer trying to secure a house, which would be difficult in a normal market environment. You know, this one's on steroids. And then all these ancillary costs that if you're, if you're stretched going in to buying your house, how you can feel even more pressure if you're not factoring in these other not so obvious costs, which we're going to outline today. So let's get into the three primary categories. Purchase, so what it's going to cost you as you purchase and go through the loan process and the house buying process. The ongoing costs so maintenance taxes insurance all that good stuff and then also maintenance as well which can mean different things to different people depending on where where you live how big your lot is how big your house is yada yada so eric do you want to touch on the the purchase costs which some might be obvious some might not be so
0: obvious sure we'll cover sort of the big ones the things that you may or may not know or even if you know them you might not fully understand them so When you're purchasing a house, it's not as simple as buying and selling other things like stocks, right? So you have a spot price on stocks. You could buy it and you could turn around and sell it tomorrow. And in modern day times, we don't have really any transaction fees. That's not the case with homes. There's a lot of fees that come along with it. The big ones, for example, is you have real estate commissions. And on average, you're going to be looking at about a 6% real estate commission for the sale of a house. Now the good news for buyers is that in almost every situation that's a part of the seller's cost. So they're going to pay those. But either way, because of those costs that has to jack prices up slightly. And there are there are uh, agents out there that operate at lower at lower percentages, but this is one of those things and I could go off for days on it. This is one of those things Nick that to me it feels like the cost or the fees paid to real estate agents is detached from the service that you get. And I'm gonna share a little experience here. We were interested, my wife and I, in looking at upsizing here sort of at the beginning of the pandemic, right before everything started to go through the roof. And we went to a friend of ours that is a very established real estate agent here in the Arizona marketplace. And what I was expecting was to sit down, talk about what we wanted, give them ideas, you know, and obviously it's going to vary depending on who you're working with. But this is somebody that sells a lot of houses and finds a lot of houses for their buyers. But I go through the whole process thinking that I'm going to give this person that's going to then become an advocate for me, that's going to go find these homes, that's going to go out and find that lot that's slightly out of the area we said, but has a great deal or this one or this one. I thought there was something. I mean, this they, they stand to earn, you know, tens of thousands of dollars from this transaction and we were ready to go if we found something we wanted. All I got was the equivalent of a Zillow search that emails to me every single day the same listers or listings that I can find on realtor.com and most of the time I'd already found them. And so I understand that there would be some transaction things that they would do, but when I actually stopped and looked at everything that was going to go into this and what they were gonna provide for me in exchange for $20,000, it just really felt like a bum deal in terms of this. So there's a little bit of a tangent, but I've, I've had a beef to pick with the real estate commission system for a long time. And I'm really, really hoping that technology can step in at some point and, disrupt this industry. What do you think about that? I think
1: you're setting me up to go on a, a massive rant. That was uh, my intention. I can tell you that's why Redfin, Redfin, Zillow, Open Door, which I own that stock, uh, as a bet against the real estate complex. And I have many similar stories to you, Eric, and I, and I call the real estate complex the most expensive doc you sign that anyone will ever sign. You know, back in the 70s, you, like you had the real estate agent that was hustling around. They'd put you in the back of their car, and they'd go find some diamonds in the rough, and they would actually find you a house just because there was no online infrastructure, no online marketplace where you could sit in your pajamas and peruse a hundred, you know, a hundred homes. Now, ninety-nine percent of the houses people buy, and that might be an exaggeration, but they probably find them themselves browsing Redfin and Zillow, and I just think. The real estate commissions are out of whack with the current landscape. It's fit for 1970, it's not fit
0: for 2021. Hence, that's why I'm betting on disruptors with my own personal money. So, moving on to the next cost for especially first time home buyers, because in today's sort of elevated home price situation, it's often very difficult to come up with 20,000 or 20,000, excuse me, 20% on a down payment for something that's going to cost you two, three, four hundred thousand dollars 400000 for your first house, especially in most markets that people are looking. You've got rent. You've got living expenses. You're often fairly early in a career. If you've got dual income, that can certainly help. But saving $10,000, 20000 $40,000 outside of all of your regular expenses can prove to be incredibly difficult. And so we have other options for loans, and you can do things with less than 20% down, but they generally come with what's called PMI. And PMI is an added insurance cost that covers the unlikely event that you default on your mortgage for the mortgage holder. So what that means is you're footing the bill an extra cost that can be anywhere from $50 to $200 to even $300 a month on top of your mortgage payment, in addition to all of the other fees that you're paying. So you might run a calculator and most online calculators will show you what the cost of the mortgage is, right? What the principal payment and what the interest payment will be. But they'd usually don't show PMI. Next, another thing people often don't think about, especially first time home buyers, when you're usually moving out of someone else's house or a roommate situation, or maybe just an apartment, when you go from a thousand square foot apartment into a 2,000 square foot plus house, you're gonna have a lot of empty rooms that you need to fill. And so you have new furniture, you've got new area rugs, you've got lighting, you've got all the things that would make a house a home to add on top of that. And finally, for the big ones, the big ticket items that you usually will need to think about when you're buying a house is often appliances. Because many homeowners take their appliances with them or you're moving into a situation where the appliances are old, and you want to upgrade. So you could be looking at between furniture and appliances anywhere from five to ten thousand dollars just to get the house livable right out of the gate.
1: Well, and for you bros that maybe lived a fratastic lifestyle, and you're in your late twenties or early thirties, you meet a nice young lady, you get engaged. The Coors Light backlit bar sign probably doesn't work for her. You know the couch that smells like beer and guac probably doesn't work for her. You know, the nasty fridge that you had in college, it just smells like the gates of hell when you open it. That's probably not gonna work. So, you know, I, I, I call this transition, and I went through this, between a bachelor, a bachelor bro to, to a grown man. Like, these are all grown man steps that you have to take, but they're not so obvious. So why don't you just go ahead and list all that crap on Craigslist and maybe earn a couple bucks. And, you know, you might tell her about it, you might not, but you, you need to get rid of that crap.
0: So moving on to the next category, there are ongoing expenses that you will have that aren't a part of your maintenance that you'll have to pay every single month, as long as you own the house, no matter what. First one on the list, everyone's favorite fee that they love to hate is the Homeowners Association, also known as the HOA. So if you live in a developed community, you have common spaces, you've got maybe landscapers, maybe you have a pool who knows? It could be could be little. It could be could be a lot of things. You will have an ongoing monthly fee as part of an HOA called the HOA that you will have as long as you own the house. And the thing with the HOA is it's not fixed, so it might start off at a certain price, but 10 years later it can be substantially higher just due to increased costs, uh, more more robust things built out in the common spaces. But either way, that's something you always have to consider. If you're buying a house in a, in a relatively low-key area, it may be very low. If you're buying a condo, it could be incredibly high. If you have pools, workout facilities, common spaces, parking garages, you can see HOA fees that are in the five, six, seven hundred dollar range. So that's an important factor to know and understand when you're looking for various houses. Okay, a couple of pro tips on the HOA.
1: Whatever you do, listen up. Do not get involved in your hoa don't sit on the committee don't go to the meetings i'm not saying you shouldn't get to know your neighbors don't don't be a weirdo get to know your neighbors but these are the most soul sucking meetings that you'll ever sit on you'll listen to ethel complain about the neighbor's dog barking you'll listen to gertrude talk about your garbage cans are, are sitting on the curb all week even though it's not garbage day stay out of that hornet's nest okay And on the property tax side before you buy you should have an idea of what property taxes run in your county and for a house of your size most of that information is available on Zillow and Redfin I mean you kind of have to look for it but it's there and then the last thing that you'll have to think about is homeowners insurance so what happens if your house goes up in flames it gets hit by a lightning bolt what happens if uh, an earthquake comes and levels your home. That that might be a separate policy, but but you need to get a basic homeowner's insurance policy in case the stuff hits the fan. And if you live in an area where there's tor- tornadoes or hurricanes or ex- you know extreme weather, make sure you get the supplemental policies or at least understand what your policy covers and does not cover.
0: And just to give sort of a rough estimate on that, I'm looking at my mortgage statement right now. And this will vary it can vary sort of wildly depending on where you are if you live in southern california versus if you live in nebraska these and if you live in a high risk area things are going to be a little bit different depending on what your tax rates are insurance costs that sort of thing but looking at my mortgage payment right now of my entire payment so principal interest and then escrow which is my property taxes and insurance that section, so property taxes and insurance comes out to be about 15% of my overall payment. And then on top of that, I have an HOA for another $140 a month. So combined, you know, you're looking at somewhere in the 10 to 20% range of your overall payment can go to property taxes, insurance, and HOA. And most online calculators when you're factoring out your budget, They often exclude those, and so you're not going to see those numbers. You have to remember to add those in yourself and make sure that you can afford that as well.
1: All right, so we've got the purchase, the real estate commissions, PMI, furniture, appliances, the ongoing costs of property taxes, HOA, and insurance. Now, we're going to talk about maintenance. And I feel like maintenance costs are correlated to how many kids you have. I have three kids, so I get stuff like... My daughter stuck a hatchimal in my toilet a couple weeks back. It clogged. You know, I was blaming people for taking massive dumps. It turned out there was a there was an actual toy stuck in my toilet. Had to hire a plumber. Plumbers are not cheap. It, you know, you're looking at a couple hundred bucks just for them to step foot on your property. I just got my gutters cleaned. So I live in the northwest. A lot of trees. Every single year, I get overflow from my gutters. So that's a couple hundred bucks. Uh, there's all sorts of ancillary. Co- I had a hot water heater that I thought blew out, but it didn't. So there's a couple ways to look at this. Some people set aside like a monthly budget, 100 to $200 a month, and they, and they rat hole it away just in case regular maintenance things come up. Or you know if you know you're going to get a new roof, in a couple years, you know, that's a, like a $10,000 bill. Like I have to paint my house next year. That's gonna cost me eight or 9,000. So there's the small stuff and then there's the big cosmetic stuff. And I wouldn't call a roof necessarily a cosmetic thing, but that's more of a big ticket item. So j- just be aware that there's all these other things. So back to my buddy Derek, who, bought the, who was the first time home buyer, what, what he couldn't get over is he had to buy a lawnmower, he had to buy a blower, he had to buy an edger. He went from living in an apartment to living in a you know a quarter acre lot with a sizable yard. So these are all the things that you need to think about before moving in, just to make sure, again, that, that you've got a, a cushion so you're not
0: stretched. The maintenance category also breaks down into two parts. You have your ongoing known maintenance, and you have your, oh my gosh, what the heck just broke and now I need to fix it fix it maintenance. On the ongoing stuff, you know, you talked about roofs and painting houses. Those are the things that you should anticipate you're going to need to do. So if you move into a house that has a brand new roof, great, you're probably going to get 15 or 20 years out of it. But if you're not, and you're moving into a house maybe that has five years left on the roof, you need to get a reasonable estimate on what that roof's going to cost if you can't just write a check for that amount when the time comes. And one of the tricks that we like to use in our house for things like roofs, painting, you know, anything that we know is going to come up. We have annual maintenance done on our HVAC system. We live in Arizona. You really don't want that to go down in the summer. You know, there's certain things we know. So we just have a rough, rough estimate of what those cost. And then we break it down by month and figure out, okay, if we need $400 a year to have this service done, then we need to set aside this amount of money on a monthly basis and squirrel it away, as you said. With the other things though, and it could be a part of your emergency fund, or you can even have a separate fund if you want to keep that separate, but the things like appliances going down. If you've ever had a washing machine break, you realize how much that can disrupt your life if your dishwasher is something you rely on. You know, it, your refrigerator is often covered by insurance, but there's going to be du- deductibles. There's all food spoilage, there's all kinds of things that come up when you own a house. It's not like renting, and we'll talk about that in a little bit a little bit later. So Eric, you're in a unique position in that you've
1: moved across the country or at least across multiple states several different times. Can you talk about some of the obvious and maybe not so obvious costs that you incurred?
0: Yeah, I've had the luxury or whatever you want to call it of, of living in a number of states now. Everybody hates moving. Everybody hates it, that the packing, the unpacking, but it can get very complicated when you're moving into a home that you're trying to close on on a specific date or, or all of these other variables that po- start to pop in. But if you're ever moving... Across state lines or doing a long distance trip, the moving costs are either going to be on one end of the spectrum or the other, and there's nothing really in between. So, on one hand, you have white glove service that could cost you anywhere from $10,000 to $25,000, depending on size of house, distance of move, you know, timing, all of these other things. On the other end, you have a get a u-haul roll your own do it yourself pack everything up drive a truck you're completely uncomfortable driving and towing your car behind you and going for the long haul and unfortunately there's not a lot of things in the middle and so if you're considering that type of move you really need to understand the cost of moving because if your company isn't paying for a relocation it can be another ten fifteen thousand dollars on top of the move In addition to if you run into any delays uh, you might have to put all your stuff in storage for a while which i've had to do our home build took three extra months so we were bouncing around between airbnbs and hotels while bringing our kid to school kids to school while we were waiting for the home home to be built so you always have to factor in a little bit of slush play money over on the side in the event that you're moving long distance and the timing doesn't match up
1: eric what are your thoughts about asking friends or family to help you move because I have strong opinions on this.
0: I am so glad you asked that because a mutual friend of ours, and I won't say his name here told me once you're 30 years old, it's no longer okay to ask people to crash on or to ask people if you can crash on their couch, drive you or pick you up from the airport and help me move. Those are the three things. Once you're 30 years old, you, you have to stop doing. Nobody wants to take you to the airport to pick you up. Nobody wants people cr- crashing on their couch because they're in town and don't want to get a hotel. And everybody hates helping people move. The thing with moving that we found, though, is that there are so many services out there now that can hook you up with local sort of independent movers. They show up They can do it 10 times faster than you. They do it all day. They'll load the truck better than you, and they'll take everything off of it and put it into the room that you specify. And you don't have to lift anything until everything's done. And if you are moving homes or if you're buying a new home and you can't pay 200 bucks to have two grown people come do the heavy lifting for you, you got to gut it out yourself because don't ask your friend. They'll say yes because they're nice, but they do not want to do it. What do you think?
1: Well, there's so many different layers to this. I think, one, if, if I've helped you move, like I helped my brother move, I don't feel bad about asking my brother to help me move. And I know that's different because he's my brother. But I, I get super offended when someone that maybe has one kid or zero kids asks me to help them move. I mean, I have three kids. I'm 39 years old. Guy, have some self-awareness. There, there's no way in hell I'm going to help you move, and it's offensive that you would even ask. I think a good rule of thumb, back to our mutual friend, and I i bet if you gave me three guesses, I could i could probably guess who that is, but thats that's actually a pretty decent list. I mean, again, going from frat bro to grown man, there's just certain things that change, and driving yourself to the airport. In the era of Uber and Lyft, getting yourself to the airport should not be bestowed upon other people with other shit going on so i I applaud that person i think those are good mental shortcuts so if 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 you're the guy who's got blinders on just asking people kids no kids if they can help you move
0: get some self-awareness no one wants to help you move figure it out so coming back on point here when we're talking about all of these sort of unforeseen expenses or expenses that especially first-time home buyers may not be aware of. How do you make the transition from the rental world into the home ownership world more comfortable knowing that these kind of expenses are going to crop up? I think there's a couple
1: layers here. Again, one, it all comes back to buying a house that you can afford, right? If you're stretched from day one, it's going to be really hard to have enough saved up to do all these other things because unexpected stuff is gonna happen. You know, I'll say it again, if 2020 taught us anything, your plan's not gonna go according to plan, okay? And then to counter that, I think there needs to be, either when you buy your house, a set-aside pot of money for fixes and maintenance and upkeep, and then going forward, you should figure out how much your maintenance budget is going to be if that's 200 or 300 bucks a month. And even if you have nothing going on that month, it's, if it's in the middle of winter, you can, you can develop a saving habit to build that fund up for when your washer and dryer goes out or your fridge blows up or you need a new roof or yada, yada. So buy a house you can afford save X amount a month to build
0: up that maintenance fund. And expanding a little bit more on the maintenance side of things, things like appliances, HVAC systems, you know, all of the electrical things that you rely on on a daily basis. As you own the home over a period of time, the better you maintain those things, the more you service them, you know, it might seem annoying to have your HVAC system checked out every year and spend some, you know, spend $200 to have somebody come in and clean it out and do all this. And that might seem like an unnecessary expense, but I can tell you from firsthand experience or secondhand experience, When your air conditioning unit goes out in the middle of summer in a hot climate and it costs $5,000 for somebody to come out and it's going to take them six days to get out and be able to replace it, you would have rather have been just maintaining it over the time. So taking care of your things is one of the easiest and cheapest ways to lower your overall maintenance cost as a homeowner because we all hear about the people that never drain their hot water tanks or never have their systems looked at. And they're the ones that experience sudden collapse of those systems at the worst possible time and then need to fork over thousands of dollars to get an emergency fix on it. So stay on top of your things, follow a maintenance schedule and keep them up to date. And that cost that you spend on that will more than pay for itself.
1: And then this is the last comment that I'll say. This came over me when I bought my first house. You know, you're all excited. You want to have people over but then you realize there's just a lot to get your household looking the way that you want it. And there's this feeling that you need to have it all dialed in on, on day one or, you know, even the first year. And what I came to realize was it was more budget friendly. If I just went at my own pace pace, excuse me, like I I didn't need to get that huge rug that cost a thousand dollars for my, for my master room on, on, on week one. So, make a list and prioritize what's important to you what is going to get your household up and running to your satisfaction and then move the non-essential extras more towards the bottom of your list it'll make your life a lot easier
0: so my closing thought for those of you that are considering buying your first home and moving from the rental world into the home ownership world You can't think of them as the same thing. They're two completely different beasts. With renting, you pay a fixed price that can change over time, but you know what you're paying. You know if you have a $1,500 rent payment that if the water heater goes out or the AC stops working or the dishwasher stops working or there's a leak in the bathroom, you call the landlord and they're obligated to come over and fix it in a reasonable amount of time. A $1,500 rent payment does not equal a $1,500 mortgage payment because of all of the costs that we talked about. So when you're putting together your first-time home buyer budget and trying to redo your personal finances around those numbers, you have to factor in these numbers we're talking about. A good rule of thumb, and it'll vary dramatically depending on where you live, but the general rule is 1% to 2% of the overall home price as your annual maintenance budget. If you live in a high cost area like San Francisco or Southern California or New York, it could be a lot smaller than that because the actual house costs of repairs is not gonna match what the property value is. But just factor in somewhere in the one to 2% range. And if you can make those numbers fit and you can afford the down payment and everything else in your system is working the way it's supposed to, then you're probably ready to buy your first house. That'll do it.
1: I'm Nick and he's Eric. Hopefully after this, you will have a better sense of what it actually costs to run a household. Join us next time for another edition of the Proper Sense Podcast. Find out more financial topics at
0: propersense.com.